Hello, Tom Herrick, at the head of the episode. If you've been enjoying Grubbing in the Filth, a review on any podcast service would be much appreciated. Moreover, you can find Grubbing in the Filth on Twitter and Instagram if you'd like to shout at me about how flies are mint or what have you. Cheers. Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth. In 2012, John Koenig in his project The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows coined the term sonder. Sonder is defined as the profound feeling of realising that everyone, including strangers passed in the street, has a life as complex as one's own, which they are constantly living despite one's personal lack of awareness of it. That feeling, which I certainly recognise, is a strange one. Every one of us has filled every day with thoughts and actions, the vast, vast majority of which will be known only to ourselves. The shopkeeper, the footballer, the firefighter, all these people think and act and they dream and they reflect in a way that can be overwhelming to consider because we haven't got access to that. Now, what on earth has that got to do with spiders? Well, when did you last see a spider? Let's say you saw one yesterday, crossing the hall. Here's what I want you to consider. That spider wasn't there to be seen. It wasn't there to be an event in your life. And as much as I know that you know that, let me try and drive home this point, which I think is quite difficult to come to terms with. That spider will have lived a life. It's hunted, escaped danger, built webs, mated, laid eggs. It was young once, a little spiderling, one of many. It has lived out of sight. And all around the world, as you listen to these words, spiders are living and they are acting and they're doing things. I suppose my point is this. We sometimes see spiders and we have our response to them, whatever that might be. But the spider is a living thing distinct from us. It was living before we saw it. And it has done things, and it will probably, hopefully, continue to live and continue to do things. It's hard to realise that that creature, the one that gave you a shock, has had to survive to get to this point, and lives an undocumented life, full of moments and events and actions. A spider isn't an abstract thing. Any one spider is an individual, living with, on some level, motivations and needs. In this episode, I don't want to humanise spiders, but I want to spiderize them. I want us to come away acknowledging the obvious but perhaps undervalued fact that spiders live lives and they are real, living things, distinct from their cultural heft, from which it can be hard to separate them. Now, I do love discussing cultural heft, but I'm going to deal with the heft at a later date. It would be easy to let this episode be an In Defense of Spiders episode, and I know you think they're scary, but episode. We'll touch on that briefly at the end, but I'm mostly saving that for an upcoming episode which I'm preparing for 2021. In this episode, let's give spiders a chance to be spiders. And before you ask, no, I'm not doing any spider jokes. You're more than welcome, after you've done listening to this, to look up some spider jokes separately. You could look them up in a book, or you could go on your computer and you could look up some spider jokes on um, on the internet. Joining me to discuss spiders and spider behaviour is Mariella Herberstein, arachnologist, behavioural ecologist and Eurovision aficionado. It was a true pleasure to speak to Mariella and yes, I did get someone who works in Australia for the spider episode. Mariella taught me a lot about spiders and it's my hope, I think she'll teach you a lot too. 
Hiya, Mariella. How are you today? I'm good, Tom. Thanks for having me. You are, um, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to speak to you. So could you tell me what is your personal and professional relationship with spiders? It's a very long relationship. it it started in in undergraduate when we had to do a a small project a small project in ecology and they they the, our lecturers gave us some ideas because of course in undergraduate you have very few ideas about what sort of research project to do and amongst amongst the ideas was a a, a project on spiders looking at spider webs and seeing what they capture relative to what flies about and that was really the the, the the first time that I sort of more intensely engaged with spiders. At this point, I always say that the other option was to work with slaters. And of course, since this ecology uh, project, I have I have continued working with spiders. But I always think about this is my sliding door moment. If I had chosen slaters <laughs> at in, in third year ecology, whether you'd be interviewing me today, asking me about my relationship with slaters rather than with spiders. Right. Is that a slater is, uh, I think we'd call it a woodlouse? Yes, that's right. A pill bug, woodlouse. Nice yes. That's right. Yes, yes. Right. Okay. So ever since I've, I've been working with spiders, every question that I've asked, um, you know, resulted in more questions I, I don't think I've ever answered any of the questions but I just keep on asking more questions and, and am I right in thinking you're based in Australia at the moment yes I'm in Sydney I'm at Macquarie University and I've been here since the early uh, 2000s working with arachnids or with insects or invertebrates more broadly do you think that in Australia that carries a different kind of gravity because for the rest of the world, we see Australia as this kind of tales are told of the spiders there, you know. And they're all true, Tom. They're all true. <laughs> the um, Australia is, is magnificent for for uh, spiders and insects. I mean, not not only is that diverse, is the diversity enormous, but they're also incredibly colorful they're large spiders, particularly and and in the insects and invariably. I think, and this has to do with any fauna or flora in Australia, it is all different to the Northern Hemisphere. And Mm -hmm. it's probably also different to anything else in the Southern Hemisphere. I think this continent, having been in in isolation for 30 million years, has just, you know, pushed out and generated all these really, really interesting but fundamentally different biologies. So spiders are arachnids, yes? Yes, correct. An arachnid, what is it that defines an arachnid as opposed to an insect or as opposed to a, a mollusk or a myriapod or what, what have you? I think um, I think there's, there's a number of different features that they have. Um, I think they, they only have two body parts rather than the three body parts that the insects have. So um, uh, 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 cephalothorax and an ophistosoma, they have definitely more than the, your six pairs of legs. In spiders, you know, it's your eight pairs of legs. They have a, a set of uh, salicylary appendages. Um, they have book lungs. Um, as opposed to trachea, although some modern spiders do have trachea as well, but it's sort of a secondary, uh, secondary thing. They don't have they don't have compound eyes. They have lens eyes. Um, okay. In spiders, very well developed. In other arachnids, less so. 
scorpions are not are not very well known for their for their sight. And do we have a sense of where arachnids kind of how they relate to other animals in terms of where they evolved from? Yeah, they're some they're somewhere stuck near. Where where should we put them best? Um, they they are somewhere stuck between horseshoe crabs and and the insects or the myriapods really. Um, but remembering that the very recent phylogeny uh, has shown that all insects are crustaceans, really, rather than insects. Um, so it's all a bit up in the air with where we all sit. So within the arachnids, what is it that defines a spider particularly? Mm. I think it's the ability to um, to um, produce silk. That really sets arachnids apart from oh, the spiders apart from the other arachnids. Um, it doesn't have, um, you know, some arachnids like uh, scorpions have a, a, a third body part, a telson, where the sting is, so they don't have that. The horseshoe crabs have this telson as well, but, you know, where they exactly sit the horseshoe crabs with the arachnids is a bit unclear. Um it's. I think it is the the ability to produce silk with uh, uh, silk glands in the in the abdomen in the ophysosoma, and then some um, spinnerets that um, extrude this silk. Spiders, in, in kind of the popular imagination, and in our, my my day to day interactions with many race, spiders I see as being solitary creatures which spin webs, and then things fly along and crash into their webs, and that's that's the life of a spider. Is that a fair representation of all spider behaviour? Uh, look, I think it's 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 a fair uh, representation of most spiders. There there is a group. There are a number of species that are social, and they're social to varying extents. Some just hang out with each other um, in in communal nests. Um, others cooperate. They cooperate in in um, prey capture, defense of the web, building a web. Um, so you get um, so the ones that hang out in Australia. We have social huntsmen, so they hang out in family group, but groups under bark. But it's, I, I'm not sure whether they actually uh, cooperate. But then you have social. Uh, you have uh, social crab spiders also in Australia, and, and here these are family groups, and here they they actually cooperate with with um, with hunting prey, and then they feed together. And when they're in groups, they do better than when they're alone. But there's very few social spiders. There's some in in there's some in Israel that are very intriguing, where the where families hang out, not the fathers. They they uh, they don't they're not involved, but the mother and the and the offspring. I mentioned the stereotypical solitary spider sitting in the middle of its web, waiting for flies to crash into it. That was a simplification, as Mariella has amply proved. But maybe the web and silk more broadly is a nice way to explore the diversity of spider behaviour further. For a start, my statement that spiders sit in the middle of their web isn't always true. Some spiders use what's called a signal line, a thread of silk connected to the centre of the web. Rather than waiting in the centre of the web themselves, they use this thread to tell if an impact has been made upon the web, waiting to feel it vibrate. They might do this from a retreat, a little silken structure within which the spider shelters, ready with its signal line, working a bit like a, a tripwire. Let's continue thinking about webs then. So, the classic orb web 
the ones we've seen misted with cold, shining dew, hung up in front gardens, that's not the only kind of web that spiders construct. In Britain, the spiders we think of as house spiders are from a genus called Tegenaria. We don't often see their webs, but they do make webs, hidden out of the way in dark corners. As well as a sheet-like web, they spin themselves a funnel-shaped retreat, which serves as the base from which they strike. If we travel outside of Europe to Africa, America and Australasia, we find spiders known as bowler spiders. Bowler spiders, sometimes called angling or fishing spiders, earn their name from the less familiar way they use their web. These spiders create deceptive chemical signals to attract moths, and then they cast out a lasso-like thread of silk, tipped with a sticky globule which traps the moth. Deceptive behaviour we'll discuss in more detail shortly. The production of silk has a great many applications beyond the typical web, You will, I'm sure, have seen spiders using a thread of silk to descend from an elevation, which they can then quickly reclimb if they run into trouble. Silk also allows spiderlings of certain species to disperse over great distances, letting out a little silk to catch the wind, in a behaviour known as ballooning. So whilst no spider can fly in the strictest sense, and no spider has wings, they are able to use their capacity to produce silk in order to gain a kind of unguided flight. And now for the linguistic highlight of the episode. A series of words to sit together in an incredibly pleasing way. Sexual cannibalism reduction strategy. A strategy which is well worth having. Silk is, forgive the pun, wrapped up in the sexual cannibalism reduction strategies of several species in a number of different ways. Female spiders are sometimes one to eat male spiders that they encounter, whereas the male would rather mate with the female. In these circumstances, males need a sexual cannibalism reduction strategy. One such strategy is the bridal veil, an evocative term coined in the 50s. The bridal veil strategy is that of using silk to tangle and restrict the movement of a potentially cannibalistic female spider, allowing the male a better chance of surviving the mating process. As this silk rarely has any significant impact on the female's mobility, it's also been suggested that the silk might be impregnated with pheromones that reduce female aggression. In other species, males gift female spiders with silk-wrapped prey items, captured prey on which the female might feed. Now the jury is out. Are these gifts a means of gaining approval? Or is this a distraction? Occupying the jaws of the female, keeping the male safe. Another sexual cannibalism reduction strategy. After all, it's documented that the wrapped gifts are not always prey items, but can simply be a little piece of rock or other debris. You are uh, someone who studies spider behaviour specifically. And Uh a spider's behaviour is presumably rooted in a very different kind of interpretation of the world around them from the way we interpret the world, you know, in terms of, you mentioned they, they have well-developed eyes and things, but I wondered in what ways the perception of spiders would differ from humans. Mm, mm. So, um, <clears throat> um, so certainly in terms of their sense organs, uh, they have, of course, uh, sense organs that are very different to humans. I mean, we have eyes and so do spiders and they have lens eyes. And in some groups, like jumping spiders, they have incredibly good vision. Good vision in a very focused way. And someone has even calculated they can their vision. They, they could see the moon. Uh, that's, that's how their eyes are structured. I, I don't know if jumping spiders, you know, sit back in the evenings gazing into the, into the sky looking at the moon, but... Potentially, they can see the moon. So, but jumping spiders are one group. Um, but the other, 
other spiders, particularly the web-building spiders, don't have a very well-developed uh, visual system. They much more rely on vibrations. And in order to detect vibrations, they have a number of sensory structures that are, that are unique to them. We certainly don't have. They have the, they're called uh, slit sense organs uh, that detect um, uh, vibrations. And they have trichobothia, which are um, very thin hair that can also detect um, airborne vibrations. So the, the slit sense organs detect the vibrations as they impact the body because they can detect um, uh, um, uh, changes to the body. Yeah, and, and then they also have very good chemoreception. Often these are just hair with a hollow shaft uh, where molecules may enter or just little pits in, in the skin. Um, and that's, um, and they can, um, again, molecules can enter and then they trigger some sort of nervous reaction. I see. Now, I know that you've done some research involving deception in invertebrates and the capacity to... Yes deceive and to camouflage and things like that and I was wondering given that they do interpret the world differently to us you know a, a tiger is stripy and it's hard to see in the grass and you know people in the army they dress up in in ghillie suits and they blend in what does deception look like in in the spider world so spiders can be deceptive in a number of ways um deception is who you want to deceive is the first question we have to ask ourselves. Um, and for spiders, there's only really two customers they want to deceive. They want to deceive prey um, to either not recognize the spider uh, or come closer to the spider and then so that spiders can prey on them and predators so that they're not attacked by uh, by the predators. And and we've been working on on both ends of deception in terms of prey deception, we've been working on how spiders use color to deceive prey, and uh, and the color that they're using is is UV. So insect prey are very receptive to UV light. They're very sensitive to UV light. That's why the flies in your house are always by the window, because that's where the the this is the source of UV light. Right. Um, and so okay. flies will always go to UV light. That's why these these purple lights work when you are outside. Mm -hmm. That zap that zap the mozzies, mosquitoes. That's that's because they're they're short wavelength uh, UV light. And and insects can't help. They just move towards UV light. They can't help themselves. And some spiders, particularly in Australia, some crab spiders, um, reflect UV light. And they sit on flowers and they wait for pollinators to uh, land on the flowers. But these these spiders are not camouflaged at all. They're very bright in the UV against a UV dull flower. And so they attract pollinators to the flower through this UV light. You, you can do a little experiment um, by just putting a bit of sunscreen on the spider, which blocks the UV reflection and then the pollinators are less likely to land on the on the flower so that's one way of deception and, and we call it deception because it deceives the the bee with a stimulus that bees usually associate with something else and uv 
um, many flowers use UV markers. So that's where this deception part is. On the, on the anti-predator deception, we're working on ant mimicking spiders. So these are spiders that look like ants. Um, some, some are very good at it. Some are pretty rubbish at it. Um, but it's, it's ants, it's ant shapes that they mimic. <laughs> and some are extraordinarily, extraordinarily uh, ant-like. So it, it takes us uh, quite a few seconds to minute to really look at this and go, oh, hang on, are these legs or is it just holding up the legs for antennae? Um, and so, you know, sometimes does, this does take us a while. And, and humans have very good eyesight. So you can imagine that something else that has slightly less good eyesight would be easier deceived. And and ants are, are not good. They're not good prey, you know. They're not tasty. They have things. They have friends that, you know, they call up in, in under attack. Uh, and so many predators simply avoid ants, and that's the benefit for the spider for looking like an ant. So so these are the two types of deceptions we work with. Right. So, yeah, deception would certainly be the, be the phrasing rather than camouflage necessarily because you are, it is about manipulating the expectations yes. of another animal. That's right. That's right. No, camouflage is about not being detected, but this this is about yes being detected, but being misclassified. You mentioned before about asking questions and about the questions you're asking about spiders, and I know that this this area is somewhere where you've done a lot of a lot of work. Could you give us a sense of some of the the questions that are being asked at the moment about spiders and where some of the research into spiders' lives is going? Uh, so in 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 the behavioral field, I think um, there's a, there's still a great activity around um, sociality or social behavior in spiders. Um, it is a real it's a real conundrum uh, this social behavior because it seems to be an evolutionary one way street, and if they're not successful socially, they become extinct. So sociality is not, unlike in many insects, it has not led to a vast radiation mm. um, of species. Um, it seems to be having the opposite effect, um, that it more leads to species extinctions uh, rather than radiation. So I think that that's a, a very interesting uh, aspect to it. But I think people are sort of moving more into also... Um, the, the, the greater detail, um, the molecular detail, so more genomes are being published on, on spiders, um, sort of combining genomics with ecology and, and behavior. The, the, the groups that are, that are really starting to look into the brains of spiders, the, the size and shape of, of the brains and how that helps or how that relates to the function of spiders. There's lots of work on the silk still. Um, a, a postdoc uh, who's who's just um, going back to Germany, Jonas Wolf, is very interested in the attachment silks, how spiders attach silk to surfaces. Uh, so that that is a very interesting aspect. So, you know, Tom, there's lots going on, and there's not <laughs> enough time. Sure. I think you, you mentioned genomes and genetics and things there i was thinking about 
with you being a behaviorist, I spoke with a, someone who works a lot with genetics recently. And one question I asked him was whether a close examination of genetics and of the way that genes influence an individual, if studying that made him sort of disconnect from what made him feel like him because he was looking at the sort of the code that makes that creates an individual and the code that that he would be in turn built from and i wondered if as someone who studies behavior and the things that triggers behaviors and you're observing behaviors very closely hmm. does does studying behavior in a sort of a philosophical sense does it give you pause for thought about yourself and about people mm. and the degree to which human behavior is, is autonomous? So I, I'm very bad with humans in terms of, in on a research basis, I'm, I'm very um, uninterested in, in humans uh, as sure. a, uh, in terms of research. That, but I just, I just think that the, the link between genetics and behavior is problematic for us. Uh, for us to interpret, mm-hmm. and then and, and we tend to go for shortcuts uh, that are, are, is really not very representative of, of probably what is something very very complex. And the shortcut is along the line of there is a gene for something, a gene for a particular behavior, a gene for that, and and I think that analogy how we started this story has not helped us much under, uh, interpreting genetics and, and how it relates to behavior very well. We do know there's a lot to work from Drosophila where, you know, we can knock out, where researchers can knock out the gene and then it stops Drosophila from doing a particular thing. Um, but I th- and, and probably from these knockout experiments, that's probably where we have this terminology of the gene four. Um, and and when and, and this is just, I suppose, just a little bit venturing into humans. When it then comes to interpreting human behavior, and 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 often these are just highly correlative studies. Often it's twin studies um, that um, you know look at um, certain behaviors and their heritability and all that. I think this is where we venture into great into great problems as a society of how we how we interpret behavior and the genetic basis of behavior and um, and and. Human behavior is particularly complex, and and I, I, I find it particularly problematic. I mean, the one the, the one as thing uh, example that I can give you is the uh, interpretation of human sexual behavior on a genetic basis, and and the perennial um, search for the gene for homosexuality, and this is such a problematic right. this is such a problematic approach. Mm. And it has been criticized um, a lot about it. Uh, this this approach of finding the gene for something has been criticized, particularly when it comes to uh, human sexual diversity. That mm. it, it is just not helpful for us. No. Uh, this this course, 
as, as a society. And so going back to spiders and going, well, where is the gene for uh, is, 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 quite, is quite difficult um, to understand. I mean, th- there is not much that ge- spider genetics are not that far ahead. But if I, if I look over to the bees, there's some interesting work on, on gene expression with bees under different uh, behavioral contexts. So, so what they do is um, exp- have bees in a colony and they expose bees, for example, to a hornet. So very stressful. And then they have a look at, at what genes are being ex- expressed um, in, uh, when they harvest the brain after this, this exposure. And of course, there's different sets of genes are being switched on under this situation. And and conversely, when you, when you have bees in a very social situation, when the bees are, I don't know, interacting, uh, feeding their brood or something, different sets of genes are being expressed. Those are really advanced studies in terms of understanding the the relationship between genes and behavior. What what I find particularly interesting is I'm just trying to find out the name of the researcher in um, in Illinois. Um, what I found particularly, um, oh, that's right, Gene Robinson did, did did this work with um, gene expression. Is good name. Uh, yes. Um, when the honeybee is exposed to a a um, hornet, and there are certain genes being expressed after this encounter, are these then the genes that are the defense genes, right? Mm. Or because the behavior, the genes are being expressed after the behavior. So the hornet, the, the bee defends against the hornet. And then after that, I don't know, minutes after that, the genes are being expressed. Are these really the genes responsible for the behavior because their expression is after the fact? Sure. So you're in the risk of sort of picking up a, a, a false trail, as it were. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, I'm, I haven't got my head around it, uh, and I have to say I haven't studied in in great detail um, his papers. But I've I've heard him speak at a conference, and that's what struck me. So it is very very tricky um, linking genetics with behaviour. Spiders are, in in the broad sense, not well liked. You know. Kids are taught to be afraid of spiders, or perhaps some would suggest that fear of spiders, distrust of spiders, is something that's innate. Mm. And I expect that you spend quite a lot of time defending spiders or being asked to defend spiders. Mm. So rather than asking you to sort of trot out the reasons why they're lovely, I wondered to what extent do you think that fear of spiders is cultural and is something that we can unlearn in some ways? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really interesting question, and and you're right. There are some some arguments that fear of spiders or snakes or even rats is is innate and is is part of a, a you know an evolved protective response. However, I think a, a lot of the 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 disgust in spiders is is not innate. I think it is definitely experiential. It is exactly what. Uh, children experience small children um, when you know they encounter spiders and and someone older than them will will react very strongly against it and I think 
children pick that up, small children pick that up very, very quickly. Um, so um, I, I actually think that a lot has to do with, with culture rather than, than any sort of innate responses. Given that you are a fan of spiders and spiders mm. sort of loom large in, in the cultural landscape, I wondered if you had any favourite representations of spiders in sort of in stories or films or I know they're often kind of monsters yeah. and so on. Oh, God. I mean, the only hero is really Charlotte. All the other oh, spiders yeah, yeah, yeah. are being, are being demonised. <laughs> I just remember that oh, everything from Harry Potter to the Lord of the Rings, right? That they're not doing well, are they? The spiders. No. Hmm. Is that um, a is that a bone of contention in the arachnologist <laughs> world? No, not at all. I think. Um, look, I, my advantage is, or arachnologist's advantage is, that everyone has a point of view about spiders. Literally, everyone does. You don't yes. have to explain. If I were working on. Um, wood lice, the pill bugs, you know, I would have to spend most of my time explaining what it is. Um, yeah. I don't have to explain what a spider is. Everyone knows, everyone uh, has an opinion whether they like him or not. So that's a big advantage. Um, so everyone's engaged with spiders. Um, I work with kids and I'm passionate about the idea that kids, in particular city kids, should have access to the outdoors and should learn to care for and be respectful of the natural world. Of course, most of our interactions with spiders are actually indoors. I think there's great value in children learning that spiders and other animals unlucky enough to have been culturally condemned as spiders have aren't evil and aren't out to get them. Kids do shriek when they see spiders, even tiny spiders. It's quite sad because it feels like an exaggerated mimicked response. It's also completely understandable, because even if you have parents who don't shriek at the sight of a cheerful spider, you still have to compete with cartoons and films and books, and this prevalent idea that the spider is a dangerous doer of evil. I try and encourage children to have a healthier, inquisitive attitude towards spiders. I mentioned this to Mariella. And I agree with you. I think a familiarity with spiders is important, and an appreciation of spiders. And I have a, a postdoc in my lab, Lizzie Lowe, who is, is really wants to increase an understanding of the value of spiders in houses and gardens in terms of pest management. And that's underestimated. I mean, spiders are huge um, predators and they can be very helpful in maintaining, you know, low levels of pest populations. And by over the overuse of chemicals, um, we, we're actually getting rid of the good guys that I help. I, I just want. I just want to say that you know you're saying familiarizing children with with spiders. I think this is this is a perfectly safe uh, exercise in in Great Britain and in Europe, in Australia. Um, touching yeah. spiders, I so. I always advise against. And and look in my lab, and I I don't touch spiders directly. I'm, I'm always very careful. Um, you know, I use a paintbrush to get them from one container into the next and um, very respectful. Even the ones that I know have, you know, are likely to be not very venomous. I've, I've only been bitten once in my entire life um, by a, 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 it's a leaf curling spider. It's a, a spider that curls a leaf in, in the middle of its web and sits inside the web. And I, I opened the leaf 
to see whether there was a cohabiting male and and well there wasn't a male but the female was was upset with me and and jumped out and and bit me in the thumb um it was it was of the the pain of a bee sting but what was interesting was that i could feel the pull of the venom as it was moving up my arm towards my armpit towards my shoulder but then it that's where it kind of stopped that then the venom must have dissipated but yeah so only once <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean with the whole handling thing i i should stress i don't i wouldn't encourage anyone to kind of see animals as their playthings yeah. by any stretch yeah i think it's a case of I think it's a great shame when children are taught to run screaming or when they're taught to, to yeah. kill. I, right. I think that there I are healthier attitudes to, to, to found. Anna, um, well, thank you so much for speaking to me about spiders. I'm aware that it's a horrific time of day for you. Um, <laughs> okay. So I really appreciate you speaking to me. Um, a, a last little note before we, before we say goodbye. I know that you've been involved in the uh, Science of Eurovision project. Oh, yes. That's so I'm a, <laughs> so I'm I'm a great fan of Eurovision, um, and and have been since I was a kid. I can't find I've I've I have checked, and I can't find any meaningful link between invertebrates and Eurovision. I can't find any spider themed songs, um. So I can't really find a, a good way of getting this discussion in here beyond just asking you if you could tell us a little bit about Science of Eurovision and. And just sort of throwing that word out there into the world and, and seeing what happens. So so I've been yes, great great question, Tom, and I'm I'm very happy to hear that you are also <laughs> into Eurovision. When when I came when I came to Australia and I started working at Macquarie University, it was more of a joke of it started off more as a joke in terms of highlighting uh, that Eurovision is coming and I started reviewing every Eurovision um, entry. Um, for the department, I used to hang up my reviews on the departmental notice mm. board, and then started running uh, sweepstakes and morning tea, and then it just uh, just it just grew and grew and grew, and we now and then I started forcing my students to write reviews of Eurovision, <laughs> and uh, we have a blog now, the Science of Eurovision, and uh, I think um, you know we, we are claiming that we we can we can scientifically predict the winners and look there are some there right. are some some elements that the winners have and uh, we have a great time literally my entire may is just wiped out by eurovision and i'm zero productive during the time and i just i just love it well i'm sure you won't have much trouble predicting where the uk will tend to come yeah, um, yeah usually last or second last it's true <laughs> Do you have a do you have a favorite song from Eurovision? Oh, every year I have a favorite song. I'm, I'm a mm. big fan of anything that Cyprus produces because it is always over the top. <laughs> um, Malta, Malta, you know, always second best. Will never win, of course. No neighbors. How can you win? Um, um, yeah. So, but I'm I'm very classic. Uh, hysterical eurovision so i like that rather than anything that is more main sure embracing the kind of the more novelty acts yes oh yes the, yes the pirate costumes and the oh, all yeah. that business oh, yes. the, the cabin crew 
the Roman legend legendaries a few years back. And it was great. <laughs> well, I would encourage anyone to read about spiders whilst listening to Eurovision songs and look forward to next May when hopefully the world's in a slightly better shape. And and thank you again for speaking with me, Mariela. Thank you very much, Tom. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, and thank you for your enthusiasm for spiders and Eurovision. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, um, which way would I order it? Yes. Uh, well, we, we haven't got a great variety of saw spiders in our homes here. Cellar spiders, house spiders, the odd crab spider. So I, I'll I'll leave it ambivalent as to whether I prefer spiders or Eurovision, but I will I'll let it coexist as a great as a an interest. But thank you again so much. Thank you, Tom. Bye. Cheers. Bye now. Well thanks again to Mariella for her time. It was very early when we recorded, and I'm assured desperately humoured. It was a great kindness she did in agreeing to speak with me, so thank you again. Do check out the Science of Eurovision at the scienceofeurovision.website. And if you're interested in my Eurovision opinions, my favourite Eurovision song is 2008's Pocassage by Bosnia and Herzegovina. It was a vintage year. Rubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. I'd love to know your spider perspectives. Do you have a pet spider? Do you hate them? Please do contact me at grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com or look up Grubbing in the Filth on Instagram or Twitter. Until next time, don't forget to lure in moths with a deceptive chemical signal before reeling them in on your globule-tipped hunting thread. Bye!